2 Samuel chapter number 23 tonight, and I'd like to read just seven verses. and We'll preach from them this evening. 2 Samuel chapter 23. This is a passage of Scripture I've wanted to preach on for a while. And um, God's not given me liberty to preach on it until now. And uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I don't think I'll say everything I want to say about it. Uh, just because I have trouble wrapping my mind around some of the things. There's so many things going on in this passage. And so this may be a little bit different kind of message tonight. I'm, I'm going to do my best not only to preach my, my message, but also maybe just say some things from this passage as the Lord gives me liberty to do so uh, that God has burdened my heart with. Second Samuel chapter number 23, and we'll begin reading in verse number 1. Second Samuel chapter 23, verse number 1. Word of God says, Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me. and His word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house be not so with God, yet He hath made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all of my desire, although He make it not to grow. But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for your word. Use it in the hearts of your people, Lord, beginning with me. Speak to my heart tonight, Lord, by extension to the hearts of those that are here, that you might receive the glory, Lord, and that we might be made more into your image. Father, we love you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many things that we could say about this passage of Scripture. But there is one thing above all that seems to arrest my attention. And that is that the Bible tells us these are the last words of David, the son of Jesse. Now, I don't think that suggests to us that he may have not in his dying moments uttered some other thing. Rather, that this is his last official statement to the nation of Israel as their king. After 40 years of reigning and ruling over the nation of Israel, this dying king seeks to impart some things, not privately as he did with Solomon at another time, but publicly with the people of Israel. that They might understand some things about life and about what it is to be used of God. And when I read this passage of Scripture, it sort of, I don't know about you, but it almost, especially the first part of it, but Charlie, it reads like an obituary. We could almost say that this is the obituary of King David in these first few verses. And so I want to preach to you on that thought, on the last psalm or the obituary of King David. And, you know, I've done my fair share of reading obituaries. I'm not to the place in life where I read them as part of my morning routine. Amen. You do get there, I'm told. But I'm not there. Of course, I've heard everyone say that they read it to make sure their own is not in there. Amen. Uh, but I, I'm not to the place that I read them routinely. But when you're a pastor, you read lots of obituaries and you study them and you preach, uh, you know, with them in your hand when you're at a funeral and things like that. And there are several marked features of this passage that sort of sound like an obituary. For instance, we find 
that David's ancestry is mentioned. He is called David, the son of Jesse. Now, I don't think anyone in Israel would have wondered which King David was being referenced here when the royal decree had been given. But the Bible goes out of its way, and David in that day went out of his way to remind people that he came from somewhere. Can I say every one of us came from somewhere? It'd be good for us not to forget where we've come from. We're living in a society that is increasingly atomized and stratified and rootless. And it would help us to be reminded that we've got some blood running through our veins. We've got some ancestry. We've got some, we've got some roots in some places. And David was no different. He said, you want to know who I am? He said, I'm the son of Jesse. That's the family God placed me in. That's what God began this journey with. And it is a foolish thing in anybody's life for them to forget where they come from. I'm not saying that where you come from has to define everything about you. But I am saying we need to be reminded where we come from. God could have brought us from anywhere, but He brought us from where He brought us from. And there must be a reason for it. So His ancestry, and this is not uncommon, one of the first things you'll read in an obituary is that so-and-so uh, was preceded in death or sometimes tragically survived uh, in their death uh, by so-and-so, their parents, their heritage, their family, their ties. So we see His ancestry is mentioned. Number two, we find that His achievements are mentioned. Uh, the Bible says that he was the man who was raised up on high. Uh, very often when you read an obituary, you'll find in it a list of achievements. They'll talk about maybe some things that a person has done in public life. I remember doing a funeral once years ago, and uh, I got up and went to read the obituary, and it was almost a whole newspaper column's length. And it had this achievement and that achievement and this achievement and that achievement. Only problem was I knew the person it was about. And they didn't do like half them things. Somebody got a wild pin in the family, man, and they had just started listing this and that and this and that. It's not uncommon for this to be mentioned in an obituary, you know, so-and-so maybe served in the military or served public office or whatever. But what was the great achievement of David's life? The Bible says he was raised up on high. In other words, the emphasis is not given to himself, his ability, but rather to the providence and help of God that God had raised him up on high. Can I tell you something? As you approach the end of your life, all that's going to matter is what God's done through you. I'm not saying that our life is not populated with a, with a potpourri of various different achievements, but I'm saying what are the achievements that matter? It's not going to be where we attained in our public career. It's not going to be where we attain in public life. I'll tell you what's going to matter is whether we let God use us. David was a man who was raised up on high. He didn't get himself there. God raised him up on high. So we see his achievements mentioned. And then we find his associations are mentioned. Again, I, in all the obituaries I've read, one of the things that will mention very often if it's a saved person, it will mention what church that they belong to. And sometimes uh, it will mention maybe some of the different organizations that they might have been a part of. If they were a part of a club or a group or this, that, or the other, it will very often... Mention those things. What was David's association? The Bible says that he was the anointed of the God of Jacob. In other words, it says this, that he was a person of God. And he wasn't just a person of God generic, but he was a person of the God of his fathers. He was a follower. He was the anointed of the God of Jacob. Can I tell you this, as you approach the end of your life, the associations that are going to matter the most are the ones that are rooted in fellowship with God. 
the things that are going to matter to mo- the most to you is number one, your relationship with God. And number two, your relationship with the people of God. We don't need to take lightly that relationship with the people of God. There's many today that have cast aside lightly that relationship with the people of God. I'm thankful there have been a myriad, uh, in, uh, you know, uh, ways, ingenuity, uh, to, uh, for God's people to be able, especially in places un- unlike ours, places where they have more restrictions than we have and they've been able to try to maintain some kind of church. Let me tell you something, there's something to the relationship that the people of God have with each other. And you can't get it through a speaker and you can't get it through a computer screen or a television screen. You've got to be with the people of God. If God had wanted teleconference church, He could have set it up that way. Would have saved us all a lot of gas money. Somebody say amen. Would have saved us all having to buy a lot of skirts and suit pants. Amen. We could just sit there done up halfway up. Nobody would have known the difference. But uh, but God ordered it a certain way. And that relationship matters. It's meaningful. And David, when he comes to the end of his life, he says, "What, King David, what do you want written about? Tell him I'm the anointed of the God of Jacob. Tell him that my crowd is God's people. Tell him that my God is the God of my father, is the God of Jacob. So we find his associations here. And then we notice his affections. Uh, oftentimes it'll say, when I've read obituaries, it'll talk about things that they love. They love the puppy or they love their kitty cat. They love their children. They love the grandkids. I've always found the pets seem to get higher priority than the kids do in most of them. But they talk about the things that they love. Sometimes they'll say they love to ride motorcycles or they love to go fishing or they love to go hunting. It'll talk about what they have poured their life into, where their affection lay. And ask King David, they said, King, you're about to die. And people, what do you want them to know was your greatest ambition and your greatest affection in life? What do you want them to know was your life's work? He says, look over at that big heavy book of songs that I've written. Know that I've poured my life into being the oracle of God. He's the sweet psalmist of Israel. In other words, the thing that is most precious to him is the time he spent with the Lord as He comes to the close of His life. You and I both understand that the Psalms are the inspired Word of God. In fact, He goes on to talk about how that the Spirit of the Lord spake by Him and how God's Word was in His tongue, Brother Ken, and He wants them to know that what mattered to Him at the close of His life, there's a lot of things matter to you when you're young that ain't going to matter to you when you're old. There's a lot of things matter to you at the beginning of this journey that ain't going to matter by the time you get to the end of this journey. Here's a man at the end of his journey and he wants him to know that what mattered was the time he spent with God. That's where his affection lay. So it lays itself out like an obituary. And David then begins to impart truth to us. And there are four things that David wants people to understand. Four things that as a dying man, he has learned from life and he wants people to know. He wants them to be guiding principles in their life. And so let's notice these four things together. What four things could possibly be in the very last psalm that David ever wrote? Well, look with me at verse number 2. David says, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His Word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The Rock of Israel spake to me. Now he's going to go on to disclose what God has said to him. But it seems to me, you know, God could have, David could have said, you know, the Lord said this and been done with it. 
but he drives it home like a hammer hitting a nail that God has spoken to him and God has spoken through him and that God had a message for him and that the message he now communicates to them is not his own. It is the message of God given to him. It seems to me like one of the things that was a big deal to David was the voice of God. In other words, we could say this, David coming to the close of his life, he looks around his funeral bed and he says, listen folks, I want you to know that God speaks. God speaks. What does it mean for a person to speak? Well, for some of us it means more than for others of us. Some people uh, use words and they abuse words and they throw them around and then others are very, very uh, stoic and circumspect in their usage of words. But when a person speaks, what they're really wanting to do is they're saying, I've got a thought and it's a thought I want you to know about. I want to take something from my heart and I want to put it in your heart and I want you to know the things that I'm convinced of. Now think about this as it relates to God. David wants men to understand that God's interested in them. You don't speak to someone that you don't want to deal with. I mean, you do if you're in customer service. Somebody say amen. But as a general rule in life, you don't have conversations with people unless you're interested in them, unless you care for them, unless you want to communicate something to them. tells us God's interested in us. tells us God has a relevant message for our life. Uh, listen, you might, you might be sitting here saying, oh, preacher, this is good. I knew all this before I got here. Well, that's all right. I struggle with it sometimes. You let me preach to me. But you understand that God has a desire for you to know His will, for you to know His Word, for you to know His mind. And one of the greatest things you can do in your life is wrap your mind around the fact that God does indeed speak to men. Now, His preferred and chosen method is through the inspired Word of God. You say, how do you know that's His preferred method? Well, it's a big old book and He went to a lot of trouble for you and I to have it. It's how He chooses to speak to us. However, the Spirit of God can impress upon our hearts and minds using the Word of God in specific situations. Sometimes, just as God had done in David's life, He'll use other people uh, to speak. But uh, suffice it to say that in the myriad ways that God speaks to humanity, in all of them they convey to us a desire on God's behalf for us to know Him and to know His, know His mind and to know His will. And the sooner that you are convicted and convinced that God is interested in you and wants you to know who He is and what He thinks, the sooner that you'll be able to do the will of God in your life and your life have meaning. Think of all that David has done in his life. He's slain giants. He's thrown down armies. He's thrown down thrones. He's set up and exalted the throne of Israel. He's achieved a lot of things. He's been a father. He's He's reared children and, and reared future kings and warriors. and He's done all myriad things. But the thing that he wants people to understand above all is one of his greatest achievements, one of his greatest decisions in life was when he listened to God's voice for him. All other great deeds and great exploits that he performed poured forth from this one singular fact that when God spoke, David listened. He speaks in verse 3 about God's voice to us. He says, the rock of Israel, He spake to you. God will speak to you in your life. He'll use His Word to do so. He will communicate with you about what His will is, about what His desire is. It's always been astonishing to me uh, with what vagueness preachers try to talk about the will of God and the mind of God. 
And I think part of the reason that they speak that way is because they understand that they lack the ability to communicate that will about specific things. Can I tell you something? I lack the ability to communicate the will of God about specific or life-specific things for you. I don't know what the will of God is about a job or about a home you're going to live in or about a car you're going to buy or whatever it might be. But that does not mean, listen, just because I don't know, that sure enough doesn't mean God doesn't know. Pray and seek God because He has an answer. He speaks to us. He talks about His voice to us. And then back in verse number 2, listen to what He says. He says, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His Word was in my tongue. He talks about God's voice to us, but then He talks about God's voice through us. In other words, He's saying this, God wants to speak to me, but God also wants to speak to others through me. Now how can I talk to somebody else about the will of God if I don't know the will of God? How can I talk to somebody else about the Word of God if I don't know the Word of God? In other words, I've got to be listening to the voice of God if I want to be the voice of God in the life of another person. And it's a reminder to you and I that God does indeed use human instrumentality to communicate His will and His mind. Man, I'm thankful He does. There's been times in my life when God used some surrendered saint to speak to me a word in need, uh, in my time of need, uh, something that pierced to my very soul and my very marrow and spoke to what I was going through and was said to me in a way that I probably wouldn't have received if it had been said any other way or from any other person. But God put that person in my life at just a time when I needed to hear from Him. You say, preacher, that's good and everything, but what do I do with it? Well, two things. One, you ought to look for when God uses people that way. Now, I always measure everything against the Word of God. God will never say one thing to you through His Word and a different thing to you through some other avenue. God will always, everything God says will always line up with His Word. But it also is important for us to understand that we too may be the one that God uses. If we're in communion and fellowship with Him, we need to be sensitive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit because we never know. Listen, we think of the ministering of the truth of the Word of God to people as being only in the confines of soul winning. Well, Listen, I'm thankful for soul winning. But you understand that even in the life of Christians, God ministers, uses His people to minister to others. And I'm not just talking about a preacher behind a pulpit. I'm talking about a Christian friend and uh, someone that can be a help and can minister the truth of the Word of God to someone. God not only speaks to us, He speaks through us. Now we better make sure if we're speaking on the behalf of God that we're speaking God's words. But we need to understand that we might be used in that capacity. And this had been David's great work in his life is that God put the pen of the Holy Ghost in His hand and moved upon Him through inspiration of the Word of God. David says, of all that I've done in my life, one of the greatest things I've done is when God has spoken through me. When God has spoken through me. So he talks about God's voice. And he says, God speaks. Number two, look what he says in verse number three. He says, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me. And here's what God said to David. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. He wants us to understand something of the voice of God that God speaks. Then in verse number 3, in verse number 4, he wants us to understand something of the virtue of God. Or we might say this, He wants us to know that God speaks, but He also wants us to know something about God's standards. God doesn't use just anybody. Now, that does not mean we have to reach a certain 
uh, class place in our life, financial place or racial place or societal place for God to be able to use us. But it is to suggest that God does have standards. It's always funny to me. There seems to be this false dichotomy that is created in many churches and really it's typically amongst people who have an agenda uh, that we have to choose between compassion and standards, between compassion and convictions. And there's a whole group of Christianity that preaches a sort of of, uh, of permissiveness that suggests that if you have standards, it's because you're a legalist. Can I remind you that every place has standards? Uh, listen, if you go down and try to work at the McDonald's in a two-piece bikini, they're going to have something to say about it. Believe me, I've tried. Amen? We won't. There's some stories we don't have time for, Fred. Every place has standards. Every person has standards. There's some people you wouldn't be friends with. And if there's not, I don't want to be friends with you. I wouldn't want to be friends with someone that was a murderer, an unrepentant murderer. I wouldn't want to be friends with that person. I wouldn't want to be friends with someone that is an unrepentant blasphemer of my God. I wouldn't want to be friends with that person. I don't think we should have to. It doesn't mean we can't pity them in the grace of God. But I wouldn't want to be a companion of them. I wouldn't want to have fellowship with them in the in the intimate sense of the word fellowship. What I'm saying is you've got standards. Everybody has standards. So why can't God have standards? Of course God has standards. What are those standards? Well, we notice the requirement of God's standards. And David speaks to the standards of God in his own life. We could go further and talk about standards in the lives of a myriad of different people. But he speaks about the standard God had for his life. And this was the standard. That he that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. In other words, God demands sincerity out of us. He demands leadership out of us when leadership is called upon. He demands application of effort and diligence and dedication these things. And on and on we could go. But suffice it to say that David says there are some things if you want to be used of God, you're going to have to do. And in your life and mine, we need to understand there's some things if we want to be used of God, we're going to have to do. There's some things we're going to have to get right in our life if we want God to use us. We're going to have to be clean. We're going to have to be committed. We're going to have to love Him more than we love other things. He's going to have to be the main deal of our life. He won't take a secondary position. He's going to have to be preeminent if God's going to use us. There's no way around that. David wants people to understand uh, that we cannot treat God as a second class individual and expect our life to turn out the way that we hope for it to. That God has certain standards and that the standards of God are meaningful. They are absolute. They are authoritative. If you want to be used of God, you better find out what God expects out of you. You better find out what He expects out of you. Anything you go to do in your life, when you go to a higher authority, you come on their terms. Don't matter what it is. If you go down to the DMV or you go down to the uh, some government agency or office and you've got to get a permit or you've got to get a license or you've got to get this or you've got to get that, one of the first things, if you're smart, that you'll do, you'll jump on the Internet or you'll make a phone call or you'll somehow get the information. You'll find out what they require from you. What kind of ID do they require from you? What kind of documentation do they require from you? You know why you do that? Because you're not in a position to not do it if you want what they've got. 
You've got to. doesn't matter what they say you need. They have the authority because they are the authority. So you find out if you need a birth certificate, if you need a social security card, if you need uh, two pieces of mail, whatever it is, you find out what they need from you because you need what they have and you're not in a position to negotiate. I, I wonder how it would work out for you if you went down to DMV and said, now listen, I don't have a social security card, but i got a library card. That'd be all right? Now they wouldn't give you your license. They might let you vote, but they wouldn't give you your license. Amen? What I'm saying is this. Uh, when you're appealing to authority, you have to come on their terms. You say, preacher, I want God to use me. Then you're going to have to come on His terms. He has certain standards. We see the requirement of God's standards. Then notice verse 4, the result of God's standards. It says, if a man does this, he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun rises, even a morning without clouds as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. We could spend a lot of time unpacking all those, and I will not, except just simply to say this, that when we do God's things, God's way, we get God's results. Part of the problem with us, I think, today is we want God's results, but we don't want to do the things of God. Or we want God's results, and we do the things of God, but we don't do them in the way of God, or in the way that God demands. And then we sit back baffled when we don't see the results that God can give to us. We talk about revival, and I believe in revival, don't you? Well, <laughs> let's try that again. I believe in revival, don't you? Alright. Nobody believes in revival like the coerce. Somebody say amen to that. We say we believe in revival. I hope we do. And we talk about the things that God has done, but I wonder if we're willing to pay the price that those in generations past have paid. Wonderful willing to live the way they live. Seek God the way they seek God. I'm saying this, if we want God's results, we have to do it God's way. You're raising children and so am I. We want to see God raise them up for the glory of God. If we want God's results, we've got to do it God's way. We can get mad about that. We can call it uh, too much, legalistic. We can say it is, it is overreach. We can say it's unreasonable. We can cry and howl at the moon. We can shout into the wind. At the end of the day, we're not in a position to negotiate about these things. If we want God's results, we've got to do it God's way. I want my marriage to look like God wants it to look like. If I want it to look like that, I've got to approach marriage in the home God's way. If I want God's results, I've got to have God's way. I've got to do it God's way. David says, if I had lived and done what God expected and asked of me, I could have seen God's results. Then notice the very next line, verse number 5. This is what I struggle with. And I've and I got a lot I want to say about it that I won't get to. But this is astounding to me. David, in all the ears of all Israel, and of course he said this because they already knew. They had seen it. He says in verse 5, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things in short. This is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. In other words, he talks about the voice of God, that God speaks. He talks about the virtue of God, God's standards. But then he talks about the vision of God. We might say it this way. He says, listen folks, I want you to understand that God sees all things. This is an intensely intimate moment of honesty from the king of Israel. I don't know if you or I would have the guts 
to do what David does here. By public edict, he proclaims and he says, my home is a mess. It's a mess. I know what God had envisioned, but I know what it's turned out to be. God wanted it to be like a morning when the sun riseth. A morning without clouds is the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. And David says, and that's what I wanted too. But my house is not so with God. He says, and God sees that. So do I. In this passage, he speaks of God's vision of his life's failures. Can I say this? We, we find in this passage some truths about leadership. Then we just find some truths about life. Can I tell you, life ain't always going to work out the way you planned. Can I tell you, life is rarely going to work out the way you planned. Everybody has glorious ideas and notions of what their life's going to look like. Can I tell you, it can look like those things. But only in proportion to how we give God first place in our life. Let me make a statement to those of you that have raised your kids. Your kids are autonomous individuals that make their own choices. Just like David's did. Some of the things that were brought about in the life and home of David were the result of his failures. Others were the result of the choices of his children. Completely unrelated to whatever failures David may have had in his life. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this, people seem to have two opinions about the way their kids turn out. They either say it's all my fault or none of it's my fault. And you know what has been my observation in 10 years of pastoring? Rarely is it one or the other. Most of the time it's a little bit of both. Most of the time there are probably things that you could have done different, things that I could now do different in my children's life. And you know, I think it's important we understand that. Not for those whose season of raising children is past because you don't need to just torment yourself. But certainly for those of us raising kids, we need to understand that how we raise them is going to determine how they turn out to some degree. But I've also found that even in homes where everything's been done, what we would call reasonably correct, sometimes children go wayward. Preacher, why does that happen? Because this thing called free will. Because they make their choices. Same way that you make your choices in life. And the reality is this, very often in your life, there's going to be failures and there's going to be frustrations and there's going to be things and you will have written a story but the way it's played out won't match the story that you wrote. David said, if I've got to be honest, I've got to say that my house don't look like this. I wish it did, but it doesn't. He sees that. All of Israel sees that. That's not what he says. He says, although my house be not so with God. He says, the real one that matters is God. And he sees that I've made some mistakes. And he sees my failures. Now look at the encouragement here. Look at the end of verse 5. He says, yet, I like that word yet. It tells me it's not all over yet. He says, yet, he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. Now, keep this a little bit in context. God had told David that because of his sins, the sword would not depart from his household. That in his lifetime, though he had a great desire to build the house of God, he would never be able to because he was a man 
of shed blood. Blood that wasn't shed on the battlefield, but was shed in sin and in conspiracy. He had some mistakes he was living with, but he recognized this, that his line, listen, his family would outlive his failures. And that one day God would be able to use his family in spite of his shortcomings. And here's what he says. He says, God sees my life's failure. That's true. And it breaks my heart. But he also sees my line's future. There's some things, some promises of God that are conditional. A great many of them. Things where God says, if you do A, I'll do B. If you don't do this, I won't do this. If you wind up in this situation and you respond this way, I'll respond this way. And I understand, I think sometimes we're a little bit down on the conditional promises of God. But let me say this, a conditional promise of God is better than a theoretical one. Amen? It's still something. It's meaningful. It's powerful. We'll just get in line and do what God expects out of us. We can see the fruit of it. But you know, there are some promises of God, we like these, that are not conditional. There are some things that God promises and He says, this really has nothing to do with what you do. This is simply what I'm going to do. And you know, God had made promise to David, unconditional promise, that his lineage, that his line, that his descendants would sit upon the throne of Israel. And now as an old man approaching death, he says, if I have to be honest, I look at my life and see a lot of failures and I wish I was leaving my children in a better world than what they're in right now. I wish I was leaving them in a better situation. But oh, it gives me comfort to know that irrespective of my mistakes, irrespective of the woefulness and weariness of the world, he says it's good to know that God's on His throne and He keeps His promises. He keeps His promises. He says this is my salvation. This is my saving grace in this hour. It's to know that though I may break my promises, God never breaks His. Though I may fail, God never fails. Can I just tell you this? Listen, that's why you ought to pray. You ought to pray. You say, preacher, I failed, then pray. Say, preacher, I'm scared I'll fail, then pray. Say, preacher, I'll never fail. You better pray. The answer is always to pray. And trust to God that God is sitting on His throne irrespective of what happens. Your failures, my failures. Rarely does life turn out the way that we wish. But God sees, and He doesn't just see our life, He sees beyond our life. And He sees not just what He's doing in our life, but what He's going to do in the lives of others when we're long gone. David essentially says this, I'm getting ready to leave this world and I'm leaving it not in as good a shape as I wish I was, but I'm glad I'm not the God of this universe. And the God of this universe, He's still on the job and He's still going to be working and He's still going to be moving. He says God sees. And then finally tonight, I want you to notice a final one. Look down at verse 6. David says, but the sons of Belial, now this is an Old Testament name given to wicked men. It's a generic term. Uh, it is referencing a particular pagan god, but it's really not uh, exclusive to the worshipers of that pagan god. It is a generic term that means wicked men. But the sons of Belial, wicked men, shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. In other words, he wants us to understand that God speaks, that God has standards, 
that God sees. But in His closing statements of life, He reminds us that God settles debts. God ministers and administers justice. And as He goes to His grave with some of His enemies laid low and others still exalting themselves against Him, the old psalmist of Israel wants people to understand that at the end of the day, one of these days, God's going to set everything right. He speaks of His inability or His weakness to settle these debts. He says, The sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. You know, when you have thorns growing up in your flower bed, the only thing to do is to pull them out. But you know the problem with pulling them out is you're only going to injure yourself in the doing of it. Now, there's other ways. Now, you can spray them with gasoline. Don't tell the EPA I said that. But you can take a big old weed whacker and you can whack them down. Or you can just make your kids do it. Amen? They got gloves. But the point being, the trouble is, a man can't pull them out. A man can't remove them, Brother Ken, without injuring himself. You know, it's a reminder to you and I that if we were to deal with this world after the way they've dealt with us, we'd cease to carry with us the character of Christ in the performance of it. You know what it'd take? I remember one time years ago, I had a, believe it or not, I had a history teacher that told me this. A few of y'all know it. I had a history teacher that told me, we were talking about presidential elections. This was years ago. And I can't remember how we got around to it, but he made a statement that always stuck with me. He said, if you knew what it took, you know what a man had to do to get to the place of running for president of the United States. He said, you wouldn't vote for any of them. I believe there's some wisdom, Richard, in that. And, uh, you know, the problem is, you ever see the old Jimmy Stewart movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? The problem is, you want to drain the swamp, you've got to swim in swamp water to do it. And you know what it is that makes swamp monsters, right? It's swamp water. It's just the nature of it. And the reality is this, for, for us to deal with wicked men the way they ought to be dealt with, we'd have to take upon us things that are not Christ-like in character. And really, we'd have to take upon us the authority and place of God. So you say, preacher, what's the best thing to do? Well, he says this. He says, you know, if you try to grab hold of those thorns and pull them out, you're just going to hurt yourself. You're just going to bloody yourself. So he says this. You need to bring somebody else in to do it. A man that's fenced with iron. A man with the staff of a spear. A man that is strong enough and powerful enough to be able to grab hold of them and rip them out by the root without being ruined by them. In other words, he talks here about the weakness of us to deal with them, but he then talks about the the wisdom of God to deal with them. And he says this, you and I can't deal with them the way that they ought to be dealt with. Praise God, there's coming a day that God's going to deal with them the way that they ought to be dealt with. I'll tell you this, one of the greatest acts of kindness that could be done to a man living in wickedness. The book of Ezekiel says this, that one of the greatest acts of compassion we can do is to warn a wicked man to turn from his wicked way. And that it is a great act of cruelty to allow that man to be lulled into complacency in that wickedness. You know why? It'd be far better they be dealt with in grace today than in judgment one day. But it encourages me to know that in a world that is wicked, we live in a world that is wicked. We live in a world where we wouldn't even know how to dispense justice or who to dispense it to even if we had the ability to do it. We wouldn't know who to lock up. We wouldn't know who to turn free. 
even if we knew and could administer that justice, we wouldn't have the wherewithal to do it. But you know there is an infinite, omniscient, omnipotent God that knows every single heart of every single human being, every single motive, every single every single uh, move against God, every single uh, blaspheme that's ever been uttered, and there's coming a day of reckoning. Now that may not mean a lot to you today, but it's only going to mean more to you tomorrow and the day after. Because i got news for you, this world's not going to get better and better. Evil men and seducers are going to wax worse and worse. And I'm just telling you this, that vengeance is the Lord's. It belongs to Him. And it doesn't belong to Him because He don't want us to have it. It belongs to Him because He's better at it than we are. He's better at it than we are. We can take encouragement in knowing this, that at the end of the day, one of these days, God's going to settle every bit of it. Every wrong that's ever been done to you or I, every wrong that we've ever done to another, one of these days, every hill will be brought low, every valley be raised, every crooked way be made straight, and the God of justice will deal with the wrongs that have been done in this world. It's enough to oppress a man into despair just to turn on the television. If you don't feel that way, that's fine. You've been watching Bugs Bunny. Keep on doing it. Sad for the soul. Somebody say amen to that. But they're going after him too. They ain't even go. Sam D. Sam can't even have pistols anymore. Amen. <laughs> kind of world we live in. But uh, if you turn on, the, if you're connected at all, used to be you'd say if you watch the news, if you this, if you that. If you're connected at all. If you do anything other than lay in bed and pull your blanket up over your head and bury yourself away, it's enough to drive a person to despair or paranoia or both. We're living in tumultuous times. We're living in times where desperate men are going to take desperate measures. You say, preacher, what does all that mean? What it means is this, for the people of God, we have a peace that passeth all understanding. And we can rest in the reality that even when we can't sort out what's been done and being done, there's a God that knows all. One of these days, He's going to deal with it. Don't grieve yourself into depression over the wickedness of this world. Take hope and comfort that there's a thrice holy God that's in control of everything. We may have to wait to His perfect timing, but you mark her down. David went to his grave and he said, there's men, by the way, he gave instruction to Solomon as he died. Kill this man, spare this man, judge these people. David's going to his grave and he still don't know who his enemies really are. But he says at the end of the day, if I tried to take them and grab them by the root, pluck them up, it'd destroy me. But God's fenced with iron. He's got the staff of a spear. He's able to deal with them the right way and pour fire on them in such a way to deal with them correctly. I'm glad to know God knows what He's doing, aren't you? Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. I don't know what God may have spoke to you about. We said several things I think a person could gain comfort from. Maybe if you were to be honest, there's some failures in your life that you're having to ask God's peace about. Things that you'd go back and change if you could, but you can't, you know. Why don't you come down and put those things in God's hand? Why don't you come down and be reminded that God's in control? You've made mistakes, and I have too. But God saw those mistakes before they were ever made. God saw those failures before they were ever failures. Why don't you come down and find a place, put them in the hands of God. Maybe you need to be listening to the voice of God in your life. God's spoken to your heart and God's speaking to your life. And you need to hear Him. You need to listen to Him. You need to be used of Him. 
Maybe it's God's standards in your life. Maybe there's some things that God has asked of you that you've thought about with Him. Maybe in your life, you're struggling with discouragement over the wickedness of this world. Why don't you take hope and encouragement in the Lord tonight? Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify Your Son. We ask it in His name.